Welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. But today, I would like to introduce you to Brian Collins, who is doing a PhD in in environmental studies under the supervision of Dr. Marcus Taylor. Welcome to Grad Chat, Brian. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on. In fact, Brian and I were just having a bit of a chuckle. It's been a long time since, as we say back home, I've had a bloke on the show. So uh, Brian is stepping up and and doing it for us. So thank you, Brian, for that. (laughs) Now, the uh, topic that Brian is doing, of course, I said he's in environmental studies, but his research topic is... Uh, what makes a resilient farm? Exploring transitions in southern eastern Ontario towards resilient agriculture. So perhaps you can just give us a quick overview of what you mean by that before we get into the questions. Of course. So generally, there's just an instability amongst our agricultural sector. So I wanted to explore, first of all, why that is, and then second, to talk with the farmers themselves to see if they have any insights or possible solutions. Okay. So it's interesting, like I said, before I even get onto the questions, I I find when I first read your little synopsis, I went, oh, that makes sense. But I always find it fascinating because we always hear about this glut of one crop, piles of these in, in these storage containers, and yet then we've got people in in Africa and other places who are starving and then there's other crops that aren't doing so well because of climate change and so what we used to do is not working or the crops aren't being rotated correctly on on people's property because you need time to was as a fallow or whatever it is to make sure that they can get nutrients back into the soils to so all these things that are happening and so this bit back when you called the word resilient, I think that's a really interesting concept of what is a resilient farm. So before I before I get into some more questions, though, what made you want to get into this field of study? I mean, are you a farmer yourself? Or is your family from a background of farming? Yeah, so I'm actually from the U.S. and I grew up in Iowa, which is definitely when you think of farming, you know, that's what you think of. Yes. But that sort of farming is, you know, cornfields and soy fields, as far as the eye can see. So I always had that slight interest. And it's funny because in my master's research, I was looking at this question, but from a much more um, quantitative point of view, using computer models and, you know, geographic information science. But when I was doing that, first of all, I realized that I didn't love spending all of my research time just in front of the computer. Right. And also, I recognized after the fact that with my research committee, that that sort of research, it felt kind of removed from the situation. 
So that's why now as I'm doing my PhD, I'm taking a more social science approach and really want to go talk to these farmers themselves. Right, which makes total sense. Yeah. That's a good background, actually, because I guess if you've seen those big crops all over the place, <laughs> you're thinking, again, how can you sustain that with all the environmental factors that are in play these days, which maybe weren't 30, 40 years ago in the in the same way? So it's good that you want to get back to I, I know myself, I love being... I love doing things, as, as, as you said, as a, the, other than just sitting in front of a computer screen. Right. And there's definitely value in crunching the numbers and thinking of the farm as just numbers of crops produced, um, especially for what we call an agroecosystem. It is just that it's an ecosystem that has social components, ecological components, political components, even psychological components. So going to the farm and actually talking to the farmers themselves helped uncover some of that stuff that just sitting in front of the computer didn't. So what made you look at southeastern Ontario? Well, it's a funny story because I came into Queens with the research intent to look international, right? So my supervisor, he their specialization is in India and Southeast Asia. So I was super interested in that. That's kind of where my master's research was taking me. And I was all psyched to, you know, go abroad and do some cool research, but then, you know, of course COVID hit. So Mm -hmm. we needed to scale back a little bit. And honestly, looking back, I'm kind of glad it happened because first of all, um, you know, my research down here, it only takes me 30 to 40 minutes to get to our our research sites. And I'm, it's a big problem here too, um, that deserves its own attention. So I'm kind of glad how it worked out that way. What kind of research gap are you looking to fill? Because, I mean, like I said in, in the beginning, that you know, we all know that in, in farming, you, you've got to spread what paddocks you're using each year to give the, the soil a chance to re-energize itself, really, and get the nutrients that it needs. So we kind of know that. So what are you trying to prove here? Sure. So agriculture in... Ontario and and also in a lot of the world, it's really at a crossroads where it can go one of two directions. One path would be uh, what we can call the techno technological economic pathway, or something along those lines that focuses on you know maximizing yield and generating profits and in any way possible. It's spurring terms like uh, precision agriculture, digital agriculture, the fourth agricultural revolution. This sort of pathway leverages big data and technological advancements to maximize yield. So you're talking there, for instance, genetically modified crops and things like that? Yes, exactly. Well, there's another path, um, and we can call it the agroecological path. So this is the path that realizes that smaller and medium-sized farms that focus on producing healthy, nutrient-dense food while also protecting the environment uh, as much as possible, these proponents of this pathway would consider this the more sustainable method. So you have these two pathways, and some farmers are going one way, some are going the other. And for better or worse, a lot of government foundations are choosing to go one way, and farmers themselves are kind of being like taking the opposite road and going the other way themselves. So I wanted to understand these dissenters' point of view. Well, that makes sense. But I mean, I can understand farmers wanting to choose a particular path, 
I would imagine smaller farms, though, would want to make sure that they produce high quality crops to get the most amount of money so then they can continue to produce high quality crops. Whereas if you're, say, in some of the other provinces, Saskatchewan, I, I guess what I don't know what the other big places are to do, maybe Alberta where they have the bigger fields with the big combine harvesters that go through. So that's, of course, maximising numbers and things. That's a little bit different and comes with different budgetary requirements because I can't imagine those particular combine harvesters are cheap. So are the ones in southeastern Ontario more of the smaller farms that you're looking at, or am I just being totally ignorant there? (laughs) No, you are right because, well, first of all, we're here and the Canadian Shield in the front net arch is, you know, it's rocky and it's hilly and there's a bunch of dense trees. So it's not like we're out in Saskatchewan where it's just flat fields nonstop. But there is a pretty strong trend that Southeastern Ontario and Ontario in general is moving towards this focus towards cash crops. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but 20 or so years ago, I think corn and soy made up only about 10% of the total agricultural product in Ontario. And that's jumped up to between 25 to 30% now. So a lot of farmers are seeing that, you know, that's where the money is. And this is directed approach from the Ontario government as they are pushing these cash crops to be exported internationally because that's where the money is, right? Instead of focusing on the small scale farmers that produce the vegetables and fruit that show up in our supermarkets and our local restaurants. That seems a bit naive, doesn't it? That, I mean, it's all very, very well to be able to make crops to go overseas, but surely we should be looking after what we need here. And And we've been hearing over the years is that, you know, we want cheaper, healthier food. And if everything, if we've got a a small amount of good, healthy food here, of course, that's going to push the uh, price up for the consumer because there's not a lot of them. That seems a bit backward. It absolutely is a naive policy. And that's kind of another research gap I'm trying to fill is that for these small scale farmers that are helping our community the most, they've been kind of left in the weeds by government policy that are focusing on expanding these cash crops big scale farms that have the big tractors and are selling all their products overseas. Fortunately, there are a few organizations in the province that are valuing these small scale farmers. So it is this kind of emergent group of farmers and people. Right. And it is interesting talking to these farmers that, you know, they have this really small community, but it's definitely not nearly as big as what we typically think of conventional farming. So tell us a bit about your methodology then, because one of the things you said at the beginning is that you want to get out there and meet people and and talk to the actual farmer themselves rather than just looking up statistics and things. So tell us a little bit more about your methodology for your research that you're doing. Sure. Well, that goes back to um, trying to better understand Ontario's policy of focusing on these cash crops is that I think that a lot of the farmers have been overlooked in this debate and they haven't even been consulted. Right, right. So I kind of wanted to talk to the farmers themselves because they have been overlooked. There's actually a good book that I draw my methodology from called Farmers First that talks about this. And it's really interesting because when you do talk to these farmers, they are so eager 
to speak and share their perspectives because I feel like they have been overlooked. So they are very keen to talk about the problems. And for my research, it's really interesting to learn about, you know, what are their possible solutions? So, so when you're talking to them, I guess you're talking to those that are trying to maintain the good, healthy product that we can be sold here within our own province, as opposed to those who have taken the route that the government has said they want farmers to go to to do the big cash crops. So, you, you're talking to both because it'd be interesting to see those that went the cash crop way why they chose that other than the fact that the government said to, or are they getting better benefits from it from the government to produce these these crops? So it's kind of like, well, I need to survive and be able to feed my own family, so I need to go this way. That's exactly right. So my research was designed in a way to capture all of these perspectives. So far, I've talked primarily with the small scale, you know, organic, that side of things. And hopefully this summer I can move on to talk to the more uh, conventional side. And you're right. I, I think it's a pretty fair hypothesis to suggest that they will be at opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Which makes it really tricky, doesn't it? And yeah, I... it, it does seem like there is a little bit of tension because, you know, these farmers, up, you know, just 30 minutes north of Kingston, you know, they live right next to each other. So there's a small scale farm growing, you know, carrots and beets. And then across the road, it's fields of soy that are spraying, you know, fertilizer. So you can you can kind of feel the tension. Well, you you brought up a good point there, too, which is something I was going to bring up later. But, you know, there's a lot more push for vegetables and and crops that are being grown organically as opposed with without having all these extra pesticides and things. And but there's usually a really rigorous uh, process that those farmers have to go through to prove that they are fully organic. And like you said, if there's the field next door or across the road is is spraying pesticide how do they keep that out and the organic farmers to be able to do what they feel they should be doing both for themselves for the environment and for the people who eventually buy their produce well it's a real issue and one example of that is that a lot of um, farms in that area they back up to Loughborough Lake which is a big a big lake up there and it used to be a lot of farms would draw their water from it, but a lot of the big scale farms, they had runoff of their chemicals into the lake. So now it's all polluted. Oh, nice one. Yeah, it's great. So <laughs> people swim in that lake as well. And there's lots of fish. And Yeah. So yeah. it's just another reminder that, you know, these farms and just, you know, society in general, it's not so fractured. It's all uh, intercombined. And another point is that, yes, it is an extreme barrier to these farmers who want to stay organic to keep their organic licenses right, or certifications. And I talked to one farmer specifically, and it's just a nightmare trying to keep up with all the certifications. And they hypothesized that, you know, the powers that be are making it intentionally hard because of, you know, the focus on you know. It's on the cash crop. Exactly. Well, see, that, that doesn't seem right, that there's additional barriers to try and grow good crops that we can use locally that I've, I've never understood that either in the supermarket where when it comes to taxes and things what gets taxed and what doesn't and it seems the unhealthy food doesn't get taxed and the healthy food does and it's things well that's not helping create a healthy population <laughs> so that's just going to hit it down the road with more health concerns 
And exactly. so that's got to be out of, you're going to be out of pocket for that. So I don't, I somehow, times I don't understand how the governments work, what should and shouldn't be taxed. Uh, we should be taxing the more unhealthy to encourage us to eat healthy and therefore help down the track with our own health bills. Absolutely. I talked to an apple orchard and they just feel it's awful that, you know, they're amazingly tasting apples. You know, they have to sell them for, you know, four or five dollars a pound. You know, that's so expensive. But otherwise, due to all the money that is required to invest in making your farm organic, yeah. there's just no other way to financially survive than to charge that much, which is a shame yeah. because the government is supporting you know, unhealthy foods and leaving these farms behind. It's very easy to talk about when we come to farming, like some of these cash crops like corn and soy. But even here, I noticed when I first moved to Kingston, look at Prince Edward County. Prince Edward County was known for its fruits and canning, and now it's more wines and beers. And again, you know, farmers are having to rethink about, well, I can't sustain keeping growing apples and pears and, and you name it because it gets it's getting too expensive and you know do I stay on the land and try something else and maybe I mean making grapes and things is for, for wine is not cheap either but that's what people are buying these days and not worrying about the price in the same way as they are about a pound of apples Right. It's a it's a really tricky situation because most farmers, they do realize that the status quo is not going to stay the same. They have mm-hmm. to change and constantly adapt both to, you know, climate change and a whole host of other things. So some farms are equipped to, you know, transform, but transforming your whole agricultural system is very resource intensive. It's mm-hmm. very challenging. There's a whole lot of literature on what it takes to transform your farm. So Some people can pull it off, but the most likely solution for these farmers is to do smaller scale adaptation, um, such as just tweaking one or two things on their farm to just try and cope as much as they can. And what would that be? So like small scale uh, adaptation would be, you know, investing in a greenhouse, investing in, you know, water barrels to better capture rain, investing in solar to reduce your electrical bill, things like that. Right. But Which again, it's all those... helping us and helping the environment. Exactly, exactly. But you can see how kind of shorter term solutions like that, they're not going to overcome this bigger picture of problems. So the other option that a lot of farmers are taking is just abandoning the business. So there's quite... Selling uh, the land for houses on because on, you've got a bit of property on a lake. Exactly. So there's quite alarming statistics in Ontario just about how many farms have gone out of business in the last 20 years because it just doesn't make sense. And of course, the farms that do last and can persevere are, we keep going back to it, the rich cash crops that get all the support from the government. So that just kind of consolidates the money in the agricultural sector even more. It's interesting too, because if everyone goes to these cash crops, then where are we going to get our basic veggies from? Now, we don't all want to want to eat corn and soy. Uh, so we still need the other vegetables to live a healthy life. So we've got to support those that are still producing those crops for us. Uh, otherwise, it's extremely short-sighted. Exactly. Otherwise, we're going to have to import them, which kind of defeats the purpose, right? <laughs> right. There's, and there's so many studies that show the importance of tying local food systems to their community and all the benefits it provides. 
keeping the money in the economy. Transportation costs are down. It just brings people together when you're eating, you know, food that was produced 20 minutes away versus 10 hours away. So that's why things like, you know, farmers markets are are so important. Yeah. And I must admit here in Kingston, people like their farmers markets, which is great. I mean, I used to, when I was living in New Zealand, there was a great farmers market there in Wellington in, in the capital there every Sunday. And I used to always have my, you know, take my handful of coins with me because it would be 20 cents here or $2 or $1. And it was just fabulous. And you've got such great produce. And, and it's the same here in Kingston with the markets. They get really good produce. Mm. But it's a shame that, you know, we can't get those, that good produce everywhere. It doesn't make sense to me. So so what are your next steps with this? Because after you've interviewed the farmers and everything, and, and, and both sides, those that are sticking with the, the good crops as doing it as environmentally friendly as we possibly can and, and being sustainable compared to those who are forced in one way or another to go to the cash crop way, what are you hoping to come from this? What kind of report are you putting together perhaps that can show the government, whether it's this one or the next, what we're doing is not sustainable and it's making things really, really difficult for the farmer. Right. Yeah. So the end goal of this project is, you're right, to influence policy in, you know, at least some tangible way. So I am hoping to, you know, get my interviews done with, you know, all sets of farmers. We haven't talked about dairy yet. They're a very important player, too. Right. And I also, you know, I want to make this as holistic and interdisciplinary as possible. I would love to get the input from input dealers. So the ones who are selling the seeds, selling the tractors, selling right. the fertilizers, they'll have their own unique perspectives. And then I'd love to sit down with, you know, one or two folks in, uh, you know, the Ontario government to get to get their thoughts. And then I can hopefully combine all of this knowledge and pick apart some very common themes and present some evidence for why what we're doing now is just not sustainable in any way. So you're looking at southeastern Ontario, and like you said, you, you originally thought you were going to be looking at it in Southeast Asia, <laughs> so a little bit different. What's, what is happening in other countries? Is it just Canada that's doing this, or is this happening in every country? Because I know like back home in Australia, the country is getting drier and drier and drier with more fierce bushfires and flooding and all those sorts of things. So a farmer in general, and it's had it tough for many, many, many years. And that's just one country. Then you've got places like, you know, Southeast Asia, where they've got huge populations to feed. But also with the climate change, they're getting more than just the monsoon rains. <laughs> they're getting floods and um, mudslides and things like that, which, again, can affect crops and what have you. So is this something that's really obvious in every country or is it just some governments are saying that no, we want the cash crop? Yeah, I do think that in general, the rest of the world is kind of following the lines of what Canada has done. I will say, though, that a lot of these organic farmers locally, they look to inspiration in Europe because okay. that's where a lot of the um, innovation in the organic sector is coming from. And that's also where they buy their specialized machinery to deal with these organic carrots. There's not a big market for machinery for working specifically with organic carrots, you know, in Canada. Right. So a lot right. of that comes from Europe. But a lot of the other countries, of course, they realize that 
we're projected to have a population of up to 7 billion people and we have to have a way to find that. So that's why there's such a big group of proponents for what we're calling the fourth agricultural revolution, which is emphasizing, you know, you just grow as much food as possible. We need to feed the people. We're going to have droughts in Australia. So places that can grow food, we just need to grow as much as possible. And other people are saying, whoa, 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 let's, let's take a step back. Let's not jump into this. For people well, who are familiar with the agricultural revolution in India back in the 1950s, this is kind of what happened where it was maximized yield at all costs. And it did grow food, but at the max expense of the environment and a whole host of other things. So some people don't want to repeat that mistake. Well, it doesn't make sense either because we say we want to create all these crops to help feed the world, but it's not getting to the people that need it. There's still great big silos full of grains and things that aren't getting to Africa and places like that because it's it's a commodity. Exactly. And just another reason why it's so important to grow local and keep the food local. Right. And also protect the environment along the way because yeah. uh, we can't keep creating these areas where suddenly we can't grow crops because that's got that financial burden on a, on a farmer is not good either. Right. Yeah, actually, it's a pretty easy solution. <laughs> we just got to get everyone on board, exactly. which I know, again, that's a bit of a naive comment from me because <laughs> getting pollies on board to to what should what is right as opposed to let's make a quick buck in my term is not going to be, as you said, sustainable. Yeah, I was um, talking to some students about this about a week ago. I was telling them because I could feel that they were getting like dejected when I was reading out these statistics. But so it's easy to be pretty doom and gloom about this. But as I think I highlighted before, there are pockets of communities and some specific organizations that are really, you know, all in on going sustainable the right way. So there are people working on this, thank goodness. Yeah. And but the thing is to get this good, healthy food to everyone, not just those that can afford it, because we all want to be healthy as we're moving forward. Yes, you've got your work cut out for you. And it would be a fascinating uh, report, particularly looking at those that did go, for instance, and I hate using that word anyway, the cash, the cash crop way, because it's not just because they necessarily just want to make a quick buck, but everything else around it was just not sustainable for them. So the only way they could survive was to go, potentially to go this way. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if, you know, what their thoughts were, if, if it had not got to that state, whether they would still be happy doing the more organic way or at least lots of different crops as opposed to just two, two big crops, for instance. Um, right. Yeah. And, and we don't we don't want to vilify these farmers. They play an important no. role. And mm-hmm. there's an interesting theory called, you know, systems lock-in, where a lot of these farmers, they bought into this cash crop system 20, 30 years ago, maybe even before that. But now all the policies and machinery is designed around keeping them in the system. So it's very hard to break out from that. And I know that happened. I remember it. Uh, in the UK, that happened too in in, in a couple of dif- different industries where the government was actually giving subsidies to go in a particular route. Well, then it gets to the point where that's saturated. And so then the government pulls back and then they've got these groups that are suddenly left with, for instance, equipment and all this excess. 
now what do they do? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the governments are very quick at saying, oh, you know, we should put more effort into this for a little bit. But forget about, well, what happens when that becomes saturated? How do we mm-hmm. then help the farmer or whoever it is to flip to something else without spending a lot of extra dollars again to make that flip? Yeah, it, it's a tricky problem. No doubt about it. Well, you're going to do well with it, I, I'm sure. <laughs> you've got lots lots to write about. And, I, and I'm sure once you've listened to the farmers over the summer, you're going to get some great information that you can use to write in your report. And let's hope, let's hope the government, not just this one, but future ones as well, regardless of which side it is, starts to listen a little bit more because the, the land is fragile as well as our farmers are fragile. We need to start looking after both. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really do appreciate it. I know, like I said, it was great to have a bloke on the show, which we haven't had for a long time. So I do thank you for doing that. And I wish you all the best in the the final outcomes of your research and your dissertation. It's been my pleasure. I've really had a lot of fun uh, chatting. And thanks again. Great. Thank you. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.